Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and the trope I never get sick of is Beauty and the Beast. I could read that trope till I die, and I plan to. I'm Kristen, and the trope I never get sick of, I don't actually know the name of it, but it's that thing where somebody is recounting a story, and then immediately it cuts to what actually happened, and it's nothing at all like the story that they told. (laughs) That's my all-time favorite one. I'm Cameron, and a trope I never get sick of is mugging the monster, which is just when it's what it sounds like. Someone's getting mugged, and then it turns out the person being mugged is a superhero or a vampire or something. It, it, that doesn't end well for the mugger, and I don't know. I find it entertaining. I'm Tracy, and the trope that I never get sick of is when you only have one person you can turn to to save the day, and it's the bad guy. And then the bad guy gets folded into the good group and there's lots of awkwardness and do we even trust you? And, but he's the only one who can make this thing happen. I love that. That's very good. Okay, a big welcome to Tracy Dion, author of Legendborn, her debut novel that releases September 15th. She also contributed to the Our Voices, Our Stories anthology and The Empire Strikes Back from a Certain Point of View anthology. So tell us a little bit about Legendborn, Tracy. Sure. So uh, Legendborn is a contemporary fantasy YA novel about a 16-year-old girl named Bree who's just recently lost her mother to uh, an accident. Um, She decides to escape and goes to an early college residential program for bright kids at a university, which is the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, my alma mater. So it's a real school. And the first night there, she witnesses a demon attack and unlocks a memory from the night that her mother died and decides that she needs to pursue the people who seem connected to this memory loss. And they're a secret society that call themselves the Legendborn. And the Legendborn are descendants of the Knights of the Round Table. So her mission gets very uh, tricky when she realizes that she's walking into a centuries-old magical war uh, in order to find the truth about her mother. That does make college harder. Yeah. <laughs> Complicated. <laughs> awesome. So listeners, be sure to check that out. And we actually had the chance to read an arc in our group. We loved it. It was so fun. Today we have some questions we're asking because Tracy's genre, contemporary YA, lends itself to tropes and Tracy utilizes them in her books to move things forward really well. So just a basic question to get us started. What is a trope and how can tropes inform the stories we tell? So I think about this quite a bit because you see in sort of book discourse, people get very uh, sort of up in arms about tropes and seeing them when they're familiar, they're like, oh my gosh, my eyes. And it's really <laughs> fascinating to me that they get this rap because I think of the, I think of tropes as really just narrative tools in uh, shorthand, sort of a heuristic even of how to tell a story. And we have ones that uh, keep popping up over and over again because we as readers or as watchers or listeners enjoy them. Not because the trope itself is golden, but because of the dynamics and uh, narrative possibilities around that particular tool. So, for example, the love triangle trope is interesting in itself, but what's what makes it fun is all the nuances and emotional arcs that happen when you have someone who could possibly be interested in two people. And that, to me, is sort of a, a narrative shorthand to get us to emotional places and to get us to a certain type of tension and conflict and dynamic. So I think of them as narrative tools. And I, you know, when someone's like, I really don't like this trope, I see it all the time. It sort of makes me feel like 
like if you look at the alphabet there's 26 letters someone's just like ah h is really bothering me today like that's <laughs> literally how i think of it i'm like you sound very silly when you're just like i never want to see this again you're like you never want to see the letter k okay well you know that's really how i feel about them <laughs> that's a great point and i really like what you said about tropes being a a tool to reach an emotion which i think is something that i haven't thought about much but that is exactly like the reason that we love when the villain has to join with the good guys and sort of become part of them is because of all of the weird feelings among those people. And it, it raises tension. It raises the stakes. It makes everything better. Yeah. I love tropes too. I'm going to, I'm going to start using the uh, <laughs> alphabet analogy with like everybody from now on. Well, you know, it really gets, we have all these conversations about, you know, our tropes overdone. And I'm, I'm like, I think they're overdone when someone follows the trope and the emotional beats to the T as a previous person. But if you take the trope and you push it and you push the emotional outcome in a new direction, then that's when the trope gets interesting again. Or if you reverse what happens in the trope or flip it on its head. And then in my case, I've gotten some feedback from people who are just like, oh, Legendborn uses all these familiar tropes. I'm like, but have you ever seen a black girl have that experience? Because some of what I'm reaching for is allowing a teenage black girl to go to all the emotional places that gets to go to because of those tropes because otherwise you're looking at only certain bodies are allowed to have certain emotional experiences and that's really you know how I feel when people say they they they're over it but I'm like you haven't seen everybody be able to have that experience and it makes a difference I guess going along that I mean you mentioned that part of what makes um Legendborn's tropes so fresh and new is Brie herself and who she is um, but I guess I felt while I was reading it that there were a lot of tropes that I had seen that I was familiar with that you had spun and made into something way more interesting or something that felt fresh. And I guess while you were writing, did you think about like specifically spinning those tropes or, or how did you go about composing something with those familiar pieces that still feels really new and exciting? You know, I don't think I went into it with that approach, I think what I I think what I went into some of the tropes thinking is that honestly playing them out over my life as a young reader, because I read YA when I was growing up, and thinking like, okay, but I wouldn't have done it that way, or I would have I would have interacted with that revelation a different way. And so I think some of it was just me exercising stuff out of my system, just getting stuff out of my like 12 year old reader system, just like, oh my gosh, like I just always wanted to see it that way. But the other things, frankly, when you push some of those fantasy tropes in particular into contemporary spaces and you hold fast to contemporary consequences and contemporary history, then I think that by its very nature allows tropes to be put on their heads. You know, in Legendborn, I'm going to try and not be too spoilery, but I guess with Brie in particular, I mean, I made made sure that I was writing about a 16-year-old black girl growing up in the South and going to a university that is a PWI, a primarily white institution. And that in itself, that environment really puts a certain type of pressure on Brie as a protagonist. And I think when you have something like a love triangle in that space, her experience of 
particularly being in a love triangle with two white boys, right? Like that's part of it. Her experience of choosing which partner makes her feel more comfortable or makes her feel more upset is going to be colored by the fact that she's already in a um, sort of a hostile environment, so to speak. That's the contemporary story, right? Like that, that there's this element of racism and it's threaded through in an environmental way. And that happens in like Lovecraft Country and Get Out. Like we're seeing art told by black storytellers use racism as an environmental antagonist. And I really love that. So when you have that pressure on someone and, and they're also going to a gala and they're dressing up in a gown, but they're the only black person there or you know you have somebody doing a trial but they're sitting there thinking like I don't have the privilege because I wasn't raised in this environment of knowing all the skills and all the fight skills and being able to wield all the weapons that these really privileged kids have been training with when you put all of those identities and pressures from the real world onto a fantasy trope I think you're automatically setting it up to be a little flipped or a little bit less pretty because I the messiness of the real world if I embraced it fully as an author then I didn't have full control over even some of the outcomes like I would just be like well I really in a fantasy world I could sort of like set up the culture so that Brie would have a different type of experience at a at a gown at a ball gown you know formal you know dance but in this one all the servants are black and all of the people who are eating the food next to Brie are white. Like that's not going to be a typical ball gown, you know, ball experience. Like she's not going to have a Cinderella situation. She's going to have these other stressors and it makes it sort of colors it and makes it a little bit more tension filled than I just get to wear a pretty dress and, and dance with the prince or whatever. So yeah, I guess that's my answer is like, I didn't go into it, but I think every time I held my own feet to the fire, in terms of contemporary issues, that's when the trope got pushed as well. So, so kind of in line with that, earlier you mentioned that you you're you're, you're using the university that you yourself attended. I would love to hear about like any advantages or disadvantages you ran into drawing that directly on your own life experience. You know, it's funny. I it was always UNC to me in my heart and <laughs> but there was a long stretch of time where I had made it into a fictional university because I felt some anxiety about calling UNC out for the history but then at some point you know my editors and I were talking about this and Ninth House by Lee Bardugo had just come out and and she owned up very you know openly like I went to Yale and these are real things and I just said you know how can I make the critiques that I want to make about history and about class and about colonialism and then pull the punch and make it into a fake space. And if I'm drawing all of these real history um, facts about the campus, like, I mean, I, I mentioned it in my author's note, there's like, I changed like three things, like everything else is definitely there. And, you know, if I'm going to do all that, at the end of the day, if there's one reader who reads this book and says, oh, well, you know, I just didn't take it really seriously, because I feel like the author just made all that up. Like if there's ever a question, then I just did myself a disservice. And so it was a long conversation of saying like, maybe we just need to call it what it is. And so we ended up talking to a con was we ended up having to do a legal read um, and having the legal department at Simon and Schuster come in and read the, the book and really talk to me about some of the possible concerns. 
And that was a process. But it, luckily, what the way I had written, she was like, you know, you really aren't doing too much. Even the things that are really maybe negative that you're portraying about the school, they're historical fact. In fact, I'm citing things, first and, you know, primary counts from UNC's own library. <laughs> so she's like, I mean, you know, there's not so much we can do. If someone doesn't like that, you know, it's the truth. So that was a con. In terms of pros, I mean, it, that campus has a lot of secret societies. I really didn't have to do a lot of work. It's a very <laughs> old campus. Um, you know, 17, was it uh, 1790s or something? Like, so you're talking less than 30 years after the Revolutionary War. This is a very old space, and it was built with certain types of intentions and um the collection of power and money in old schools like that produced these elite hidden secret societies and everyone on unc knew that they existed you didn't know necessarily how to join them you didn't know how they recruited you didn't know what they did but you knew that they were there and it's just i wanted to recreate that and really show that there are spaces where you just we all assume that there's some elite stuff happening behind closed doors. And I remember I mentioned that to my editors and they were like, really? Are these real? And I said, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's absolutely a castle on campus that no one knows how to get into. You don't ever see people enter or leave. And there's all there's rumors for decades about whether it's tunnels that get you there or do they enter in a, another building that's connected um, there are hooded figures that chant um, the night before Halloween and walk through campus with candles. I mean, there's just such an acceptance of sort of this occult slash good old boy <laughs> like <laughs> world um, that I had to put it on the page and it made it, you know, that's where it was easy. And the, some of the Confederate statue stuff was tricky, though. It was hard to navigate that because our country was going through a lot of turmoil, is going through a lot of turmoil around stuff like a Confederate Confederate name building and statue. And the, the statue in the book that Bree uh, encounters was based off of Silent Sam, which was a real statue at UNC. It was up when I started writing the book. Activists took it down in August of 2018, I believe, um, while I was revising the book. And then it got bought slash, you know, exchanged with what was widely to be believed a white supremacy group. Now the, the state has sued them to get it back. Like there's just all of this stuff that was happening in real time while I was writing Legendborn where I was like, I, this book is never going to be caught up. It's so it's so now that, you know, the world is changing around those same topics as the book is being written. Well, I really love the rich environment in Legendborn, so kudos to you. It feels very real, very, very rich. And maybe this question is a little bit off topic, but it could be influenced by the environment you chose to write the book in. Would you say Legendborn is urban fantasy, and how does that tie in with contemporary fantasy? Would you say there's a difference, and why the distinction matters? Yeah, I would say there's a difference. You know, there's people can have lots of different opinions about genre so i'm just going to give you mine um but my my take on fantasy is you know there is sort of quote-unquote high fantasy which is like lord of the rings i don't like using the word high because i feel like it just makes it seem 
a certain level of elite or something. But that's a common term. And then there's low fantasy. I don't like using that word for the same reasons. <laughs> but that's more sort of contemporary or connected to our real world. So in my mind, contemporary fantasy is the umbrella mm-hmm. genre. And then urban is a very specific subgenre within that sub with really contemporary is a subgenre of fantasy and urban is a sub subgenre of contemporary fantasy. I, you know, urban has its own collection of familiar tropes. There's often a closed or open uh, world of the supernatural is co- really common in urban fantasy. Placing it in the city allows for you to have all sorts of underground groups, clubs, hidden doorways, you know, there's noir elements, you know, urban fantasy just, it has a certain texture to it that contemporary doesn't need to have. Contemporary, another example of contemporary fantasy is like Twilight, like that's a contemporary fantasy. It's also a paranormal romance, but it's a contemporary fantasy, not an urban one. She's in the middle of the woods half the time. (laughs) Um, And I do think it's, you know, Legendborn, it feels very much like a contemporary fantasy in that what I'm challenging, you know, the reader and the world to do is to balance fantasy and contemporary issues at the same time. So if I take seriously that word contemporary, which if you use it by itself, that means that that's a book that takes place in the here and now. If I take that word seriously, then I'm asking that book to do double duty, to actually mix two standalone genres. There isn't an urban genre so to speak. It's not something you hear frequently, but urban fantasy is just a specific type of fantasy. And usually in the city or, you know, got that sort of like concrete jungle type vibe to it. So yeah, that's my, that's my like super scientific slash not scientific answer. (laughs) No, that's very useful. Thank you. Well, now we'll go on to the portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. A quick review of how we critique, we try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of this submission for yourself and see all our notes, you can view that on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So this week's submission. In a world where a person's worth is literally judged by how many followers they have, Jason must bump up to the next status level or face a future as an indentured servant. So what are some things we liked about the submission? So one thing that I really love um, about this is I did feel like it had a, a lot of voice. I felt like I was really intrigued by the voice in that the voice was able to carry me through a lot of paragraphs where I wasn't exactly sure what was happening, right? Like, so we're, we're being placed into a new world. Like you mentioned, we're being placed into some this like sort of digital, like maybe near future. I don't know exactly how the author social media dystopian hellscape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) and so there's, there's like orientation that has to happen in a world like that. And I felt like the voice was strong enough that I was willing to hang with it, even though I wasn't always sure what was going on. I was going to say, with the voice, I really, really, really liked that we got stakes and what we stand to lose and what we want and why we want it really quickly. It's all on the first page. I always appreciate that. And I liked that um, the first sentence even immediately established a genre for me. Like, I knew sort of what to expect. And even within, like, the, oh, this is sci-fi futuristic, I knew exactly what sort of sci-fi futuristic I was getting into. So even though I didn't always know the details of how the society worked, I at least understood like 
what I was supposed to be imagining and like the general context I was supposed to have. I agree. I loved all the little notes in here or just little world building details that kind of really painted this as like a boppy technicolor social media hellscape with with the dark underbelly as um, Cameron has said. One of these is when that I just thought was fun. There's this evil mom and she has spinning pink donut nails. I thought that was fun. And I really liked the idea of like apps that can do things to such an extreme where like you've got the facade app that she mentions, which makes everyone look really pretty and like all the time and not just in pictures. And then there's one that Jayza uses to keep herself calm. It, it just sort of takes the idea of like, there's an app for that and takes it to the logical, illogical extreme. What are some things that could use a second look? You know, I'm looking back over some of my notes and what I'd had. And I, I have this phrase that I use for myself. It comes from education. It's called just in time information versus just in case. Um, and it's a really good rule of thumb to think about with world building. I do think there are times when I was getting information that the protagonist wasn't like necessarily needing in their daily life. So I was getting it and I would call that just in case information. So I was like, okay, this is information that I could probably tuck away. And you can do that. Um, that's always really useful when you're planting seeds and things like that. But I did get a sense that it might be worth revisiting how much information we're getting that isn't actually immediately right in front of or utilized by the protagonist. I totally agree with that. So I felt a little unbalanced at times while I was reading it. And I think part of it is because of what Tracy mentioned. And specifically one example I was thinking of is we know that Jaysa is a three. And so she's right at the cutoff. Like you have to get to be a four or higher or you're doomed to work in a workhouse. And all the people she interacts with are really horrified by the fact that she's a three but I sort of got stuck on the question of like wait aren't lots of little kids one two or three she's a teenager like surely this has to be something people interact with everyone has to start somewhere so I was wondering about the logistics of it all and I got so trapped up Hmm. caught up wondering about those logistics that it made it hard for me to concentrate on what was actually happening I, I agree. I really, really like a lot of the setup that we get on the page, but I wish a lot of the implications were carried just one step further. Mm-hmm. So, like, if the number of followers you have is, like, the end-all, be-all of, like, your social status and what you're allowed to buy and what you're allowed to wear and all of that, well, why doesn't everyone just follow everyone? Like, you can come up with an answer to that question, but I feel like just just an aside to kind of address some of those logistical concerns would help ground readers in what's going on. I'll second that. I think a lot of these questions I would be okay waiting for more information as long as I knew somebody was asking them mm-hmm. or as long as I knew that the author or the narrator had them in good hands. Um, the thing about first chapters is we just don't know the author well enough to know if, if we can trust them with these questions. So it can help readers along a lot if they see that the, the issues they have, the author is going to address them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much with Aaliyah on this one. I, I don't actually need any more information, at least personally, about the world in this chapter. I just wish I had a little bit more signposting of the author promising that she would answer the questions eventually. That's a really good note. And that's, you know, the idea of trust. You do have to both intrigue in the first chapter and suggest that there's a whole book worth of 
world um, that you're that that it would be good for you to read. You have to sort of like convince your your reader of that. But you also you're right. You do need to sort of make them feel that they're in good hands. So I, I agree with that. The idea of signposting that this is information that um, is it. I'm just trying to get the say the name right. J- Jace, it's Jasa. But anyway, um, just wanted to make sure that we felt that what Jasa was interacting with was critical to Jasa, and then anything that we needed to know or have that was a seed that was going to be planted was called out in such a way that we felt comfortable that it was a seed as opposed to a critical bit of knowledge that I needed right now. I think that's the, the trickiest thing with this is when your first chapter, your first, your first chapter has to suggest that there's a broader world, but also you have to be able to communicate when someone doesn't need to hang on to a detail for pages or paragraphs when they don't really need to hang on to it right now. Are there any final thoughts? This is a really tiny thing, but I was, when we find out that Haley is young enough that she's still living with her mom, I was surprised because there hadn't been any hints before then that she was a kid. And since she was employing Jasa, I just assumed she was an adult. So that really caught me off guard. I mean, she could be an adult living with her mom. She can. Absolutely, she can. No judgment. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, to this author, thank you for submitting. We really enjoyed reading your work. And Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm really happy. You've had really wonderful questions. So thank you for asking me about tropes and genres. And and to this author, I just wanted to say one more thing is I thought that the chapter button was really nicely done. So that the turned off Haley's facade, that would have definitely made me turn the page. Amen. I will definitely second that. Listeners, Legend Born comes out September 15th. So be sure to keep an eye out for that wonderful book. Our next guest will be Amina May Safi, author of This Is All Your Fault, Tell Me How You Really Feel, and Not the Girls You're Looking For. Submissions for Amina are already closed, but check on our website for a list of future guests you can submit to. Please check out our new Patreon page. It takes a whole team of creatives to do the show, and we'd love to do more slash make the show better than it already is, and patrons help us to do that. There's bonus content like hot seat critiques and a writing group where you can get critiques from at least one of the podcasters once a month. And, you know, we're pretty great. (laughs) Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens, the crown princess of social media and Photoshop. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) 